MSW Media. So what is all the fuss about unmasking? And what about Michael Flynn or the Senate Republicans investigating? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Michelle Du, Eric DeWurst, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You can become a patron too on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. All one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say, you know, I rarely spend much time uh, on this podcast talking about sort of what I, I regard as, you know, GOP right wing distraction uh, and talking points. But I will say um, our tax dollars are being spent on a massive Senate investigation of the origins of the Russia investigation. And I think it is worth all of us understanding really what's going on so that we can understand, you know, what, what is just something that's easily debunked, uh, what, what actually is, uh, accurate and not about any of these, uh, you know, factual, um, discussions that are going on. No, and I, and I appreciate that we're spending time on this. As you mentioned, it's, it's important to uh, address it, but I, I do understand why you haven't in the past, because if we chased after every single thing that Trump threw out there, that would be all the podcast would be about <laughs> the non- so much nonsense. Exactly right. And, you know, I got to say that, you know, there's there's at a certain point here, there's no there's nothing here. This is, you know, to use an old uh, phrase, there's this is all all hat and no cattle. Um, you know, there is this allegation about Obama gates, um, but there's really no allegation or no specific crime you know uh, there's no uh, no nothing factual about a specific crime that they're they're claiming that Obama was involved in uh you know essentially what we saw this week was you know an email that Susan Rice I think uh, sent herself essentially saying that you know President Obama said well if you you know whatever the FBI is doing regarding uh, Michael Flynn do it by the book and uh, that's supposedly the scandal um, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, stuff around that, uh, that is being discussed. I've just, I've, you know, read, uh, th- multi-thousand word, uh, articles by the, by right-wingers trying to put together sort of this plot or conspiracy that they think occurred. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the months to come. Well, and I think part of that is to stir up that anti-Obama sentiment as we head into the general election and all the campaigning, because, of course, President Obama is going to be a big champion of Joe Biden's. 
So, you know, I think a lot of a lot of my friends are, are speculating that it's just to, to detract and, and to just really conjure up all that negativity, that hatred against President Obama. And plus, I'm sure I'm sure Trump was was very angry at that commencement speech and how classy and dignified our former president came across. And how, <laughs> you know, I mean, there was a lot of talk about that. Plus, he yeah. uh, plus President Obama got a 10 out of 10 from Room Raider. You only got nine out of 10. So you got to aim higher there, Renato. <laughs> I did get, I will let you know, Patty, in an effort to get my score up from 9 to 10, I did I get some plants to put behind me because I, I noticed that with Room Raider, the plants do better. So we'll uh, we'll see if uh, if I get a 10 next time I'm on uh, MSNBC or CNN. Just for those who aren't, a quick side story since we're talking about it, and I brought it up, my apologies. But uh, Room Raider is a really fun Twitter thread. Now that so many people are obviously having to broadcast from home in order to appear on national television, including folks like yourself. Uh, they rate the rooms, but they're also raising money to make sure that they're getting supplies to uh, Native Americans and other organizations, uh, other areas of the country who are struggling for PPE and food and supplies and things like that, too. Uh, but for anybody who has a, vi- a video conference, it's a great way to learn about how to enhance the background because it is distracting when you see you know a lot of clutter or it's not well lit or the angles are bad so you can learn a lot from that thread i i have to say you know one one of the reasons that i think it's important to talk about this topic and i hadn't thought you know other potential conspiracy theories or distraction ploys were important to talk about is i think this topic is very confusing and i think that's part of the power of this in other words most people, myself included, don't know a lot about unmasking. We don't know a lot about, you know, counterintelligence investigations. And so there's a lot of people out there who hear all sorts of, you know, complicated technical stuff and then allegations that Obama did something wrong. And they, they don't, they feel completely unable to evaluate themselves, whether that's true or not. And so they just sort of think that there must be something to it. And so I think it's really important with something like this that's complicated to make it simple for people so they they can understand for themselves what the issue is. That's great. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, too. I mean, especially since it apparently is going to be a topic of conversation in a lot of different arenas. Well, it was shocking to me. Lindsey Graham put out this list of people that he wants to have testify. It was an extremely long list. Lots of big names, you know, very much in my view, you know, focused on generating uh, headlines that, you know, and sound clips for Fox News, you know, not only people like James Comey, but a lot of uh Obama administration officials like Ambassador Rice and others. So it really looked to me like it was tailor-made to create a sort of scandal slash distraction. Because I think one thing that's a problem for the Trump campaign right now is that last time a big part of their strategy was Hillary's emails over and over and over again, right? And, you know, with Biden, they don't really have anything like that. And it's just like, well, he's old or he doesn't, he's not articulate enough or whatever they're trying to say, you know, both of which, of course, can be applied to Trump. Um, and so I, I don't really uh, think that it has the same level of oomph. So I think they're trying to manufacture a scandal, the same like they did, they tried to do with uh, his son, Hunter Biden, uh, in order to distract. Right. Oh, yeah. So now let's bring in Asha Ringapa. Asha is a former FBI counterintelligence agent. She's a professor at Yale University. Uh, she is also a CNN uh, legal and national security analyst. 
And as many of you know, I went to Yale Law School with Asha many years ago. And so she's a, a friend of the, of the uh, podcast and a frequent guest. So now let's bring in Asha Rangappa. Welcome back to the podcast, Asha. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been a while and I'm glad to be back. So uh, we, the reason that I thought you would be a perfect person to talk about this topic is that, you know, I think a lot of us are confused by uh, all these allegations that are being um, thrown about regarding unmasking and so forth. And I will say, Asha, I don't usually spend a lot of time focused on what else, whether it's conspiracy theories or distractions uh, from the right. But I think that this topic is so confusing that the confusion about it is is in kind of helping them, uh, you know, make make the case that there's something uh, wrong here. Yes, I think that's right. There's been a lot of conflating of terminology, and um, I think attempts to link, you know, one thing that is legal to something else that might be Ill- illegal, but that are actually in reality disconnected. So yeah, I'm happy to talk through it with you. As a starting point, what is uh, what is un- what is this unmasking stuff all about? I think I think everybody's confused by that. Right. So the what when we talk about unmasking, um, let's just rewind for a second. Um, we have several different intelligence agencies, all of which may come across, uh, you know foreign intelligence information or intelligence information that may be relevant to the broader intelligence community or to policymakers or government officials. So when they come into possession of intelligence that might be of broader interest, they can generate an intelligence report where they share the information that they have. And remember, you know, post 9-11, the 9-11 Commission said that the sharing of intelligence was critical so that different people in government and different agencies can connect the dots. Um, and, and they're not just siloed in their own, you know, information. So when it comes to electronic surveillance, when an agency collects intelligence and it chooses to share it uh, outside of the agency, That intelligence, that surveillance may include what are called incidental communications. And what that means is if you are surveilling a target, you're you're trying to figure out what, you know, this particular target is saying or doing, you may intercept a communication, say a telephone call where they're speaking to another individual the individual they are talking to is an incidental communication. That's because that person isn't actually the target of the call. But you have to listen to the other side of the conversation to understand it. Um, And when they choose to share that intercept or information about that intercept, that incidental communication, if that person is a U.S. person, they basically mask the identity of that person. And the idea there is to protect the Fourth Amendment rights of this person who was not actually an intended target, but who is a part of this you know, conversation and who has been captured on this communication. So the identity of that person is masked when that intelligence is shared. And so what it'll say is something like, you know, Boris, uh, was, you know, Boris spoke with U.S. person one discussing, 
blankety blank, blank, blank. Um, and that is how when someone receives that intelligence report, they will read it. So that's that's what masking is. Unmasking is when, let's say I'm a government official. I get this report and it says, Boris spoke with, you know, U.S. person one about, you know, weapons of mass destruction or something like that. Um, I might say, uh, yeah, I need to know who U.S. person one is because, you know, we know that Boris might be involved in trying to develop weapons of mass destruction. And this is really relevant to us understanding how this is connected to people, you know, to, to someone in the United States and what they might be up to. So that official or the person in the relevant intelligence agency will send a request back to the original agency that got the information saying, I need to know who U.S. person one is in this particular communication. And they provide a rationale for it. Um, they say this concerns, you know, a, a potential crime. This concerns, you know, I need to understand the foreign intelligence information that's contained here. Then that agency will adjudicate that request and say, okay, this is a just this is a proper justification, and they will unmask the identity of that U.S. person and provide it to the requester. So that's what masking and unmasking is. Um, you have to have a justification that is either that you need the identity of the person to understand the foreign intelligence that's contained in the report. Um, and there are a few other justifications, like I just mentioned, like it concerns, you know, uh, a crime. Um, and I can, I can pull up the other justifications, but there, there are four of them, I believe. And you have to, it has to fall under one of them in order for the identity to be unmasked. All right. That's very helpful. So just, you said that the agency adjudicates it. So for example, let's just say that the NSA is the one that uh, obtains this intercept. So if someone at the White House says, I want to unmask the, the, the U.S. person in this particular conversation because it looks like they're committing a crime here in the United States, um, they would contact the NSA. And there's, is there a particular official then at the NSA or some uh, division or, or department at the NSA that determines whether or not that's a proper request? Yes, I don't I don't know all of the details, but yes, there would be, you know, people who are uh, tasked with receiving these requests, determining whether like logging them. I mean, the reason that the NSA was able to provide this whole list of the people who requested them and is that, you know, everything, all these things are they have to go through certain channels. So those requests have to be logged. The justification has to be logged. The, the person or people who are tasked with reviewing it and determining whether they're authorized to, whether the justification is proper, but also whether the person who's requesting it is authorized to receive the information. Um, and then, you know, they'll unmask it and return back. So mm -hmm. um, I, it's, a, it's a highly regulated process. It's not like you just pick up the phone and say, hey, can you unmask this person for me? Um, you know, there's a there's a very clear, you know, channel and process that it has to follow. Yeah, it's interesting. One thing I will say that is very frustrating to me when I about all of these sort of right wing talking points is that often there are potential questions that could be raised that are legitimate and real reforms that might be uh, useful. 
but they don't they end up getting obscured by the the partisan nature of this and the attempt to you know score political points in other words you i could see somebody making an argument that there needs to be a more robust process for unmasking or maybe just a more robust process um for unmasking when it involves politically sensitive cases um but it's you know unfortunately um, that is not really what is you know going on here. The goal is just to parade a bunch of Obama administration officials before the Senate in order, you know, in an election year to try to create clips for Fox News. Yeah, and I think that one of the big points that is getting lost in this is um, the entire, you know, the entire point of unmasking is that you don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On your on the paper you're reading, it says U.S. person one. And so, you know, I think that in many cases you may not even know that it's politically sensitive because you actually don't know who it concerns until the identity is returned back to you. And so there, there is this um, way of phrasing this that has been incredibly confusing to the public, which is, you know, when they unmasked Flynn and it suggests that they knew it was Flynn and they wanted to somehow like pull the mask off of him or something. But, you know, that they they requested an unmasking of an unidentified person who turned out to be General Flynn. That's how it worked. And so, you know, I think that what is surprising in that NSA list is that there were so many different people in disparate areas of the government who were apparently reviewing intelligence that was so alarming that they independently provided their own justifications based on their own need to know that they needed to know who the identity of this person was. And they didn't even know who, they didn't realize it was Flynn. So he was raising alarm bells across the government uh, because of, you know, where, you know, whatever he was communicating um, about uh, with these targets. The second thing is that NSA list, I think it also gets overlooked that at the very top of that memo, it states very clearly that every person on that list went through the proper channels and were authorized to receive the information. In other words, they provided the proper justification. So there's no, um, there's nothing to suggest that they somehow tried to, you know, end run the process or try to do this, you know, secretly and not leave a paper trail or anything like that. Um, you know, it was done by the book, uh, to use a phrase that's come up lately. The other, the last thing that I'll say is that there is also, um, I think, some confusion about, you know, that this was kind of somehow illegally eavesdropping on Flynn. And I've already mentioned the incidental communication piece, but just to bring it home, at least with the NSA, the NSA does signals intelligence, SIGINT, and it is not authorized to surveil people inside the United States. It it can target non-U.S. persons who are reasonably believed to be located abroad. This is under the FISA 702 authority. So the fact that Flynn actually was an incidental communication in these intercepts means that the NSA had already, you know, had already been surveilling foreign targets 
that were thought to have foreign intelligence value that were located abroad. And Flynn was somehow in contact with them and got captured in these communications. Um, you know, that's to me a little bit sketchy, right? I mean, on the one hand, you know, they, these, they, there could be, you know, legitimate contacts that he's making, you know, maybe for his consulting business or whatever. I mean, it's not like, you know, people don't contact foreigners for, for work, but again, these intercepts, A, generated an intelligence report. In other words, they had foreign intelligence value that needed to be circulated among the government. And B, people saw it and, you know, basically freaked out and needed to know who it was that was inside the communication. So what about this? We've, we've seen this story that the, in the FBI reports, the names weren't masked. What, what do you make of that? Okay, so this this is a very, very important point. I mentioned that the NSA cannot surveil, conduct electronic surveillance inside the United States, um, and it can only target non-U.S. persons reasonably located abroad. Inside the geographical United States, FISA, like the, the original FISA process is the exclusive means by which the government conduct electronic surveillance, which means that they have to get an individual FISA order or warrant from a FISA court to target a person. Now, we know from the FBI's IG report on Crossfire Hurricane that Flynn was never the target of a FISA. He was talking to Ambassador Kislyak, and Ambassador Kislyak was based in D.C., and this is actually indicated in the 302 that was prepared after Flynn was interviewed. Even though Ambassador Kislyak is a foreign national and he's representing Russia, when he is inside the United States, the FBI is required to obtain a FISA order from the FISA court to, to conduct electronic surveillance. He is considered a foreign power. I mean, obviously, as an ambassador from Russia, he, he essentially is Russia. <laughs> he <laughs> is a foreign power. Um, but nevertheless, they need to get a, a FISA order, and that is done by the FBI. That is done by the FBI's counterintelligence division. And so the FBI would have gotten a FISA order on Ambassador Kislyak and would have been uh, capturing his communications, um, and that particular call would have been an intercept by the FBI. Now, as I mentioned before, you know, the masking process is for when you are disseminating intelligence outside of your agency. Within the FBI, the FBI doesn't need to mask anything. I mean, they're, they're basically capturing this as part of their counterintelligence investigations. Um, and so, you know, and I should also note that at the time, they had an open investigation on Michael Flynn. So, the FBI is different than, say, NSA or CIA because they're not an intelligence collection agency. They are an investigative agency, which means that everything that they are doing, even if they're doing surveillance, has to be in support of their investigative capacity. Um, there has to be an investigative purpose. If it generates foreign intelligence on top of that, then they they can uh, you know circulate that, but that's not the primary mission. And so 
when they collected this call, it would have been placed in the relevant investigative files for Ambassador Kislyak, for Michael Flynn, which were open investigations, and, you know, and also to anything else that it's relevant to. And, um, you know, so so there was no need to to mask it in the first place. So there would have been no unmasking. And so this whole NSA list is kind of a complete red herring because it literally has nothing to do with the Flynn Kislyak call or the subsequent uh, criminal prosecution that came out of that. Um, and I don't know if that's not understood by the DNI. Um, or if they are purposefully trying to, you know, create this link uh, between them, um, maybe by saying, hey, this NSA list has Biden on it. And Biden, you know, unmasked somebody who was Flynn. And now they're prosecuting him. So Biden, you know, engaged in some kind of illegal action. And they're completely, they're just separate. <laughs> um, and they don't intersect. And I think that that point is starting to come out a little bit more in the mainstream reporting. And yeah, that's what, exactly what we're doing is because I think it's confusing. For instance, we just had a, a question from one of our listeners. Uh, Patty, do you want to read that one? I think it's related to this topic. Absolutely. Uh, they're asking if uh, the FBI surveillance not masked would have led to requests to unmask the redacted intelligent, intelligence intercepts. There, I believe there was one request by the FBI on the list of NSA requests. Um, I would have to pull it up. And so, yes, that that could be the case. And this is exactly how it's supposed to work, right? Like the FBI has, you know, let's say they have an investigation on some type of activity. They get an intelligence report from the NSA that describes something that may be connected to, to something that is an open investigation, then they can request an unmasking based on that. Um, but they are requesting an unmasking for a separate, for an NSA intercept. And they do have to connect it to their own investigative activity in that case. Um, that would be the FBI's justification. So for example, um, one public, you know, example of when the FBI has used an unmasking of uh, an NSA intercept is the plot to bomb the New York subway. Um, they were able to unmask the identity of a U.S. person who presumably was talking with some terrorist located abroad. And as a result, they were able to, uh, you know, do an investigation and essentially stop that plot before it was, you know, it came to completion. So, so I, I don't know if that answers the question. I, if that, I think there was one FBI request on that NSA, but that would have been related to, you know, unmasking an outside intelligence report that they believed was connected to their ongoing investigations. Right. It sounds like what you're saying is, you know, the FBI conducts investigations um, you know, here in the United States for counterintelligence purposes, for example, uh, to in what that means essentially is they're trying to figure out what foreign governments are doing here inside the United States and whether there are United States persons like uh, citizens or, you, you know, uh, naturalized citizens here who are working with foreign agents, for example, or acting as foreign agents. And then they also conduct criminal investigations. And so it seems to me like your point is, you know, the FBI is you know, potentially going to be making requests regarding 
surveillance conducted by other agencies, and those agencies are are doing surveillance of non-U.S. people abroad uh, for purposes of intelligence gathering, and the standards there are lower. They don't have to necessarily go to courts and get uh, warrants and so forth because this surveillance is um, outside the United States of people who aren't even, you know, U.S. persons. Is that essentially the, the, the that's my understanding based on what you described? Yeah, th that's right. And the idea is to connect dots. You don't want the NSA to be sitting on information um, and the FBI to not know about it or to be able to connect it to something that they're doing. I mean, this was exactly, you know, it wasn't the NSA, it was the CIA. There was a lack of information, intelligence sharing between the FBI and CIA that led to a lot of the intelligence failures before 9-11. Um, and so the idea is to basically open, try try to balance the, you know, creating more porousness among the agencies while also protect, protecting, um, you know, the Fourth Amendment rights of U.S. persons who who may be kind of innocently caught up in these kinds of communications. And that's why there is this additional layer where you have to justify why you need to unmask an identity if, if it comes across the radar. Um, I do want to, there's another confusion that I just want to clear up, which is between minimization and masking. And these are two different concepts. Um, and I can talk about it with regard to uh the FBI in particular, because people, you know, I've, I've seen some people respond and say, well, the FBI is required to minimize too. You know, you're lying. They, you know, that he wasn't unmasked. And they're confusing two different concepts. Um, minimization is that, you know, the purpose of foreign intelligence surveillance um, is to, you know, obtain foreign intelligence in service of, you know, these counterintelligence investigations. With, and when you're surveilling someone, you're, you're, you know, gathering vast amount of information. Um, it's not the agents that are sitting there with headphones on. These are typically linguists who are, um, you know, monitoring these, uh, you know, channels. Um, they will provide, you know, cuts of what they, you know, what they've been tasked with as being potentially relevant. Then an agent has to go through all of that uh, raw intelligence and they have to determine whether it actually contains foreign intelligence information relevant to their investigation. If not, they have to discard it. Um, and there are, you know, minimization reviews. I've been through them where lawyers from DOJ come through and they'll actually go through your file and they'll say, why did you keep this? Like, what is the foreign, what is the foreign intelligence purpose of, of keeping this particular intercept? Um, and so you have to justify it. So minimization is about, you, you know, non-retention of any kind of information that doesn't relate to foreign intelligence. And Renato, you've dealt with this in the criminal side, right? Like if you get electronic surveillance on a criminal target, say, you know, a mob person, um, and you're, you know, you've told the court that you're doing this because you're trying to get evidence of, uh, of a crime, you, ha you know, and, and you can t describe the process on the criminal side. I think in that case, the agents are actually monitoring and they have to um, cease. They, they're basically, you know, popping in and out because if the person is communicating, like they're ordering a pizza or something like that, <laughs> then, you know, they can't listen in. But if they're having a conversation about, you know, planning a hit or something like that, then you can. In the criminal context, the way it works is that, as you point out, agents are listening to the phone calls. 
Uh, if uh, if it's in a foreign language, then you'll have uh, interpreters who will be you know you know who are trained by the agency who will be listening into those calls, and they're instructed after things go in a kind of a, in a non-relevant category. Let's say it's a romantic call, a personal call, you know whether they're ordering pizza or talking about their personal life. They minimize after a certain number of seconds, and usually, I mean, I in my recollection, I think it was something like 30 seconds of, of non-relevant talk, and then they would do spot checks. So they would kind of pop back in every so often to make sure that the, the conversation didn't go back, go, didn't veer into a different direction. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, if it suddenly veered back into a relevant direction, then they would start uh, listening at that point. The minimization standards for criminal cases are stricter because you are you've already specified the crime or crimes for which you're trying to gather intelligence. Um, in the foreign intelligence world, it's it's slightly broader because um, there can be more things that have foreign intel like foreign intelligence is just a broader concept. Um, you might be trying to also assess vulnerabilities of the target, for example. So there could be personal conversations that are. Uh, that you could justify as being foreign intelligence, having foreign intelligence value, if your foreign target, say, let's say, you know, is in, is in debt, you know, mm-hmm. um, and talking to, you know, their whatever the person they owe money to, or talking to somebody about how much they they need money or how much they need like some kind of operation. I mean, these kinds of things could be relevant um, in addition to you know, actual things like, you know, so-and-so traveled here or there and they're giving information about um, potential spies and stuff. Um, But even so, you still have to justify uh, keeping the information and the, you know, non-retention of non-foreign intelligence information is part of the minimization process. Um, You know, masking is is basically kind of a, a type of minimization, but it really relates to when you are disseminating that information um, outside of the collecting agency. So what do you make of, Asha, this email, um, I believe it was Ambassador Rice sent to herself, um, essentially saying that there's a conversation with President Obama and James Comey and others that she was present for, and President Obama said, well, whatever you're doing regarding Michael Flynn, just handle it by the book, Um, and he wanted to have nothing to do with it. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that this is consistent with what we know of the, you know, leading up to the election is that I think President Obama was really taking pains to avoid any appearance of political influence um, in these investigations, because obviously it was kind of unprecedented to have this, you know, campaign. And um in many ways, I think uh, I, th- I think that was the wrong decision and personally, but um, I mean, in the sense of like, I think it, it resulted in them being less aggressive than they could have been or even less transparent with the public than they could have been. But I think they didn't want to be seen as trying to put the thumb on the scale of the outcome. So I don't, I think it's consistent with what we know about other aspects of this investigation. Um, I also think that it's not uncommon for government officials and lawyers to, you know, write kind of closing memos, kind of documenting what has happened to date. Um, I think there was a concern with the outgoing administration that um, aspects of this, you know, of their national security concerns and the ongoing investigations would be buried. Let's remember that in the first week of January is when uh, the intelligence community sent out its 
um, assessment of Russian interference in the 2016 election, um, the week before Obama had expelled 35 Russian diplomats. I mean, they're taking these steps, which are quite public, I think, to say, hey, look, something bad went on here. Um, and they they wanted to kind of have some uh, public you know, view uh, that so that it wouldn't get buried and no one would ever know about it. And I think this is just a behind, this is the kind of classified version of of that, of, of leaving something in the file of this is where we left things. Um, I find it really weird that that's supposed to be some kind of smoking gun of, of guilt. Because most times when people do illegal things, they try to hide it. They don't write memos about it. Yeah, I mean, I, what I would say is this: as a lawyer, uh, not only was a prosecutor for a long time, but practices. You know, now I practice on the other side uh, in a law in a law firm. You know, I would say, look, it, it is certainly the case that when you think that there is some something that needs to be documented, either because you think it's potentially sensitive uh, situation, so you want to cover your uh, butt, so to speak. You know, you'll write a memo to the file, you write an email to the file, sort of documenting what happened. And I mean, what I regard is happening here, it appears on the face of it, obviously I don't know anything more than what was been reported, is that it looks like what she saw was, okay, this is politically sensitive. And I think, I personally um, think the Obama administration was right to, to tread very lightly here, certainly to keep a wall between uh, the political side of things and law enforcement. And I also think they needed to tread very lightly uh, given the political nature of this. I mean, we've seen even though Obama appears to have not been involved in this, that there's still allegations about it anyway. And I think it's reasonable for people to be concerned about DOJ being used for, for um, and the FBI being used for political purposes. And I think she wanted to document what the president had said, President Obama, because it made clear that they weren't going down that road. And otherwise, there would be no written record of what he did. And so this is her contemporaneously at that time saying, here is what the president said. He made clear that he wanted to have nothing to do with it, that it should be done by the book and so on. So that this way, just like now, if there's ever a question about it, um, there's she has this record that that records that. Now, I, I think what the Republicans are going to are trying to allege is like she wrote this to cover up what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as you said, I don't, that's usually not what people do. Uh, usually if people, um, you know, are doing something nefarious, they don't write it down or write anything down about it. They, they, but you know, their, their allegation is that this, I suppose, is some sort of false record. Uh, there's really no evidence of that. And, you know, they're going to get her testimony on that. But I think, um, it is definitely, um, not, not, uh, not the sort of shocking email that, that one would expect given the height of outrage that there has been uh, on the right. Yeah. And no one has ever like, no, I don't find a good explanation for, so the, the allegation is that they were investigating the Trump campaign as some sort of preemptive coup to prevent him from, you know, being elected. Okay. So after he was elected, then what's, the point of continuing these investigations. Well, to remove him from office would be their argument. You, I, I mean, like, so like, I mean, you know, destroy him so from like, within or something. They, they something. know that everything that they're doing, they know there's an incoming government. They know that, you know, they're, they're basically docu like everything that is now coming out about crossfire hurricane. The fact that the IG could audit the whole thing is because it was all documented. 
Mm-hmm. You know, they're not like they weren't in the back burner, like shredding documents between November 9th and January 20th. They were continuing the investigation, which, you know, suggests that they actually had valid national security concerns. And this is also contained in Susan Rice's email, which is there was a concern about and, and they've, they've homed in on this as some sort of, you know, smoking gun, but that she was concerned about sharing intelligence with Michael Flynn about Russia. Um because they had, you know, information in their possession that he might be sharing sensitive information with Russia. And so the question, you know, they until they resolved that, there was a there was an open question of, you know, should we be careful or cautious in what we're we're, you know, sharing with him? Because you know, because we're not sure whether it might be, you know, going back to this other hostile foreign power. Now, it looks like she didn't actually uh hold back on sharing information but that fact i think only in my opinion validates the counterintelligence investigation into flynn and the reason the fbi agents went and interviewed him about the conversation he had with kislyak um we haven't seen the underlying transcript of that by the way um which Many people, you know, all of those people found incredibly problematic. And I think uh, Sally Yates even testified with those exact words that it was very problematic, whatever was happening. And so I think, you know, if there's some suggestion that he, you know, was just doing things that are completely above board, I think that there's no reason not to declassify that transcript and let us see what exactly he was discussing. Yeah, we don't obviously know what's in there, but it is definitely an odd thing to have an investigation premised on the idea that there is no justification for an investigation of Flynn and then not, you know, make that public. And, you know, really, a lot has been made public here. There's been a lot of declassification, much more than we've ever seen in the past. Of course, there's also been FISA warrants declassified, which is, you know, heretofore unheard of. I know we have a question from our listeners on this. Patty, do you do you have that one? Well, there's there are concerns. You mean about the uh, um, whether or not, mm-hmm. right? So, do you, what kind of damage is done to intelligence services when someone in an official position, confirmed or acting, proactively declassifies recent internal documents for reasons not compelled by outside forces, such as a FOIA request, court order, or other similar scenarios? It's incredibly damaging. I think we need to step back and understand how much information this entire saga is providing to our adversaries. Um, everything from you know declassi- declassifying the FISA and uh, this this latest list. I mean, first of all, even with say something like the electronic surveillance on the Russian ambassador. Everybody kind of knows we do this. They know we do this. We do do this. They do it to us. But we don't talk about it. This is the whole point mm-hmm. <laughs> of intelligence, okay? We don't say it out loud. Um, and that's, you know, maybe one possibly more benign end um, because, again, when someone when you're coming in as an ambassador or diplomat, you probably expect that. But it's just – it's still – an odd and awkward thing to kind of say out loud on the other end with regard to these unmasking requests with the NSA. And I made this point on Twitter, you know, as I mentioned before, these were intercepts of uh, foreign 
intelligence targets um, that the NSA had already been targeting. For all we know, they could they could have still been surveilling those channels. Uh, they might be secret channels. I mean, the NSA does SIGINT. They do amazing work. So, you know, it's not just like their public, you know, cell phone number or something like that. It could be, you know, things that uh, these targets did not know was being monitored. When Grinnell released the NSA list, there are dates of when those uh, unmasking requests were made. And they know that those intercepts included conversations either with or about Michael Flynn. Those targets can now reverse engineer when they talked with Flynn or when they were discussing him and on what channels they were doing that on. And if they're still using those communications channels, they will stop because now they know that they're being monitored by the NSA. And who knows what other kind of intelligence is being dried up as a result of that. Um, you know, Grinnell and now the new newly confirmed DNI, uh, you know, Ratcliffe, um, they don't have the intelligence experience. I mean, one, like the best case scenario is that this was done through complete negligence, that they don't understand the kind of second order ramifications of what they're doing. Um, the worst case is that they do and they don't care. Um, so there, there is a lot of, um, I think, consequences. And I'll also add that, you know, people who are actually working with the FBI or CIA um, as human intelligence sources providing information have to be viewing this declassification and thinking, you know, I don't know, there could be some political fight in the United States and I could get exposed. And if I'm, say, committing treason against my government by helping the United States, I could die <laughs> if I'm exposed. And and this is going to hurt, you know, those kinds of recruitment methods in terms of getting sources to trust and work with our intelligence services in the future. Yeah, I have to say um, the damage, uh, you know, particularly to, you know, our intelligence, intelligence gathering, and I also think to the FBI as an institution is pretty strong. And, you know, what's it's frustrating to me, as I've said before, I mean, there are reasons, I think, to take a look at this. I think a bipartisan review of what happened here could potentially be a positive thing just because, you know, the FBI obviously was aggressive. You want to make sure that they were, you know, doing that with the proper justification and so forth. But the manner in which this is taken really looks like, as you suggested, Asha, that they really don't care about the potential damage that's being done. And it's more about achieving a, a, a video clip that can be played in a campaign ad. And that's really what my main concern is here. I think that's right. I mean, we've had, you know, congressional oversight before the church committee hearings in the 70s, um, you know, the Tower Commission during Iran-Contra. And those have been, you know, bipartisan attempts to really get to the bottom of things. And I think there are classified hearings where if you want to view things that um, may be problem. I mean, I think oversight is is good. Um, but this kind of just, you know, willy-nilly cl classification, just throwing it out there. And by the way, also throwing it out there in a very selective way in which, which doesn't actually promote um, transparency and accountability. Because as I said, you know, just, just releasing a list of unmasking requests is really meaningless unless you're also going to either declassify the justifications for those requests 
and or the underlying intelligence reports on which those requests were made. Um, as I described it to, you know, in other places, it's like playing Wheel of Fortune <laughs> and saying, you know, there are five E's uh, in this phrase, but you don't know how many letters are there or <laughs> how many other vowels or what else is. I mean, it's, I need to like, buy another okay. vowel. <laughs> exactly. I need to buy another vowel. Like, you know, this makes no sense. Like, it tells me nothing um, except that there are five E's. Okay, great. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a very selective and misleading kind of declassification that doesn't even promote other democratic values, um, even as it is imposing these costs on our national security. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I am very much a proponent of transparency in government. And this is an area where the type of transparency is, in my in my view, misguided. In other words, what we really need is not dumps of our intelligence methods and sources and things like that. What we need is a you know bipartisan account of what happened, whether it was appropriate, what was done by the book, what wasn't, and whether we need to reform our practices going forward. Because I will say... You know, part of the outrage that's going on on the right is the, you know, there's an outrage at the aggression that the FBI showed in investigating Michael Flynn. And I will just say that that level of outrage is shown by um, many criminal defendants and their families and friends. Uh, and um, there are certainly arguments that can be made that, that the system should be reformed. But uh, it's not, you know, the, that that call for reform is really not what's going on here. What's going on is the suggestion that somehow Flynn was treated differently than everyone else on Earth. And, of course, he was a very special case as an incoming national security advisor who was uh, having uh, problematic conversations with the Russian ambassador on the, on the counterintelligence side. I can understand why he was treated differently. On the criminal side, I, I don't think he was. Yeah, and I think that we also forget a key intervening factor here is that, you know, however you want to criticize, um, you know, the circumstances surrounding the Flynn interview, what they said, how they said it, you know, the opening of the case afterwards, there was a special counsel appointed in May after all this happened. Um, this is an independent prosecutor and it, happened to also be the former director of the FBI for 13 years, mm -hmm. Robert Mueller, who was able to come in and review all of that and decide whether it was appropriate to carry forward. And they did. And, you know, he was not somebody who was involved in the Obama administration or in these unmasking requests or in, you know, working with Comey. I mean, he came in completely from the outside with his own team of prosecutors they reviewed it and determined that that moving this case forward um, actually was in the interests of justice. Um, and I think that requires a high degree of deference because that's what the purpose of appointing the special counsel was. And, you know, and I think we're at a point where Barr is really just trying to, you know, undo all of Mueller's work, uh, which kind of, I think, basically renders pointless the point of appointing a special counsel in the first place. Yeah, I have to say um, it is very unprecedented. Uh, and that is exactly what has happened here, which is, you know, you have special counsel Mueller made charging decisions that were approved, of course, at the time by acting attorney general Rosenstein. 
Now Rosenstein's gone, Mueller's gone, and what you have is a bar in a number of circumstances, whether it's Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, et cetera, essentially trying to undo that. And, uh, and, and you know, it looks like he will succeed, uh, potentially in the case of the Flynn prosecution. A number of listeners have asked, you know, and this is, I guess, more of a question for me, what I view the import is of the D.C. Circuit asking yeah. the judge to uh, offer a justification. And the short answer is I think it's not good news for Judge Sullivan. I think it suggests to me that the D.C. Circuit, you know, is – you know, is concerned about what's going on here and they want an explanation from him. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, um, you know, prevent him from handling this motion, but it suggests that they want to hear what he's up to, what his inclinations are. And, you know, I think if he says, look, I just want to gather more information, I want to hear more arguments before I decide this because it, you know, there's been a lot of controversy here. I want the public to feel confidence in the decision and that everyone's been heard. I think, um, you know, that that may be okay. But I think if he, um, you know, looks like he's veering too far outside of his lane, you could see action by the D.C. Circuit. You know, re- remember that, you know, he's in a very weird position where both the Justice Department and the defendant want the charges against the defendant to be dismissed. It's very hard for the judge to to try to push forward a prosecution when the Justice Department doesn't want to prosecute. And, of course, Michael Flynn uh, has rights himself, obviously, as a United States uh, citizen who is being prosecuted. So I think, um, you know, Judge Sullivan has to tread very carefully here, and it looks to me like a sign that the D.C. Circuit uh, is trying to you know, figure out where he's at, uh, not in terms of his ultimate result, but in terms of what what should, what is the point of all this process uh, before the process goes too far and there's amicus briefs and filed and an and a hearing and so forth. So you think that it makes sense? I I wouldn't say that. I would say that it, it appears it, it it sounds like the D.C. Circuit's concerned, and I will say that. One, there, there are reasons to be, to have some concern about what Sullivan is doing in the sense that first, you know, certainly I, 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 one thing that uh, Flynn's attorney made hay of is Sullivan's made some ill-advised comments in the past. It was not appropriate for him to be speculating that the Justice Department should have tri- uh, charged General Flynn with freeze treason because first of all, he didn't commit treason given the very narrow definition of it of treason in the constitution. But, you know, separately, it is odd for him to create this much procedure around a motion in which the parties both agree. Uh, it should go one way or the other. And I think, um, you know, I think they may be concerned also, you know, he, he had the suggestion that he was considering holding Flynn in contempt for perjury. Now, um, the, the DC circuit hasn't addressed that because that wasn't really before them, but that was also sort of an aggressive, um, uh, suggestion by the judge. And, and I think there's enough there where, um, I could see, I mean, I, I will say this. I, I was, I'm surprised, I was surprised by the DC Circuit's re, re, ruling. Um, but I, I can see why there is some measure of concern there. And I think it may potentially just ultimately be an exercise that, you know, um, make sure that Sullivan is not veering too far outside the lines in what he's doing. Yeah. 
So we have, I think we have one more question from listeners before we go. I think people are continue to be concerned about the conduct of Michael Flynn. I think every, there, one continued refrain from listeners is whether or not, you know, people are going to get away with it. What is the danger, long-term danger? Patty, what's the question, the last question that we got? The, the last question that we have is, do you believe the counterintelligence investigation of Flynn has been closed? Has the threat been neutralized? If Flynn walks, does the FBI have grounds to open another counterintelligence investigation? I suspect that the counterintelligence investigation on, Cl- on Flynn has been closed, yes. Um, I think part of that would have been his actually retroactively registering as a foreign agent for Turkey. And once the national security threat was no longer there, um, in this case, I think him becoming um, the national security advisor, um, you know, with potential conflicts of interest, uh, I think that that ended and um, they wouldn't have pursued that as they were also pursuing the criminal investigation. Um, Will they reopen it? So, so, okay, in a, in kind of a world where the FBI is actually independent, I think it would depend on a, if he were brought back into the administration and B, there was any evidence that he had, um, you know, mixed allegiances or, or conflicts that, you know, were not, uh, he was not being above board about, um, with Bill Barr as the attorney general, I think absolutely not. Yeah. I have to say, I would, uh, I would suspect I could be wrong. Uh, I would suspect that Flynn is going to be spending his time if he does come back into the Trump administration or even as a role in the campaign, spending his time trying to, um, uh, get, get his get his name back, uh, so to speak, his reputation back, and obviously it looks like I would imagine bash the DOJ and FBI. So um, you know, certainly there'd be a lot of scrutiny over any investigation of him, and uh, if he has any brains at all, he would be steering away from contacts with the Russians or other Turks or other foreign governments. That's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Asha. I've learned a lot from this. I always do learn a lot from you, and it's really helped us, I think, demystify a very uh, complicated topic. Thanks so much. Um, Can I add one thing just because I think it's a last, like an important piece for people to keep an eye out? Of course. You know, there was after, uh, in January of 2017, um, public reports in the press about uh, Flynn's contacts with Russia. And I think that there is a potentially legitimate inquiry into whether there was an illegal leak of that information. Um, And I just wanted to put that out there because, you know, I think that the unmasking issue is completely separate from that. Um, But there still may be a legitimate, you know, potentially criminal inquiry. Um, I just don't think those two are connected. And I, I hope that this podcast has helped people understand you know, the process of unmasking and why that's not illegal and why that is different than a leak, which could be. Oh, that's really helpful. That's helpful to me because I had seen some news reports about that potential leak and, I, and I'm and i glad that you brought that up. I did not ask you a question about that. So thank you, Asha. Um, great. Well, I look, thanks again. I learned a lot uh, and I appreciate you taking the time out. Great. Thanks so much, Renato. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. 
Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 